The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. My name is Darcy and I work in the editorial team here at the IAI. And my name's Charlie and I'm a senior producer here at the IAI. So today we've got the debate The Good and the Evil featuring fearless thinker Tommy Curry, esteemed philosopher Massimo Pigliucci and author of Zed, Joanna Cavenna. And this debate took place at How the Light Gets In Festival 2022 and that's the philosophy festival produced by the team here at the IAI. So Charlie, tell us a bit about today's debate. Well, this debate explores questions such as whether good and evil even exist, and whether they're useful categories that incentivize good behaviour, or whether they're just justifications of our own prejudice. Interesting. And what did you enjoy about this debate? Well, I think the audience have a fantastic heated exchange to look forward to between Tommy Curry and Massimo Pigliucci about whether cosmopolitanism and enlightened values could ever be used to justify acts of genocide and hideous acts of mass murder. Interesting. Well, we should get to it then. Remember, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Now, let's hand over to our host for this debate, Miriam Francois. Thank you so much for joining us on this delightfully warm June day. <laughs> hey. Um, for a couple of millennia in the West, we have judged people and their actions by the standards of good and evil. But from Mother Teresa to Winston Churchill, the notion that an individual is simply good is hard to sustain. Almost all claim to be good. Even the Nazis believed they were on a moral crusade against the evils of corruption and deceit, managing to enlist the Catholic Church in their support. And from the Crusades to 9-11, seeing oneself and one's cause as good has a habit of intensifying dispute and conflict. Should we conclude that dividing the world into good and bad is not just misguided, but actually dangerous? Should we adopt a stoic approach to human qualities and actions where kindness and brutality could both be valued in the same one individual? Or is the distinction between good and bad essential to social well-being, public order and individual growth? So let's meet the speakers. Joanna Kavanagh is a multi-award-winning writer of philosophical fiction, named as one of Granter's best young British novelists for her groundbreaking novels. Massimo Piliucci is a philosophy professor at the City College of New York and former co-host of the Rationally Speaking podcast. His research interests include the philosophy of science and the philosophy of biology. 
And Tommy Curry is a philosophy professor at Edinburgh University, where he holds a personal chair in Africana philosophy and male black studies. His research focuses on Africana philosophy, critical race theory, and anti-colonialism. Thank you so much to our panel for being here. We're gonna kick off with each of you laying out a three-minute pitch in response to this question. Should we conclude that dividing the world into good and bad is not just misguided, but actually dangerous? Tommy. Yes, so I would have to say that those kinds of binaries uh, have been utilized throughout history largely as an extension of what one in-group or dominant ethno-group has thought reflects the qualities of themselves and how they've utilized the notion of good, be it morality or even an independent system of ethics by which we determine what the good, the bad, or the evil should be uh, to impose certain, certain kinds of norms and structures on our groups. Uh, it's, it's fascinating to me because when you look at the whole history of Western thought, um, some thinkers like a Rousseau, for instance, would say that the idea of good and evil actually originates in civilization when one wants to create a system of ethics by which we can evaluate and judge actions and individuals and ultimately groups. Uh, he thought this is one of the failures of the arts and sciences and, and the letters. So you're looking at a tendency not of all of humanity, but I think particularly in Western humanity, to impose the good as an intuitive, that has a intuitive relationship not only to reason but to being, and to suggest that people who exist or the groups that exist within kind of the illumination of the good uh, has the right to not only impose but rule over those who are bad or evil or don't have the same access to it. And I think this presents a very important quandary for how we think of our, our contemporary world and modern civilization because now we're not simply having philosophical arguments or debates you know, in the agora or, or in forums where we're trying to come to a consensus about the values that we think constitute what is the good. Um, but rather we're using economics, military might, politics, and violence to impress one specific notion of the good on others. And these hierarchies that we develop between each other, be it an in-group or an out-group, be it a political party or otherwise, um, exude a denigration, if not dehumanization, of the people that we see on the other side. So the question isn't only in the danger, but it's kind of the processes, the mechanism by which we want to actually secure the good in the world. When we try to secure the good, when we claim that we have knowledge of it, we end up constructing enemies who are opposed to us. So what becomes evil is not something that is obvious and intentional, something that's a brute fact of nature that simply imposes itself on other, everyone else equally. Um, but rather what a particular group defines as the evil that they want to overcome. And that seems to be more akin to people defining themselves as semi-deities that have God's given right that's been ordained by something higher than themselves and us to understand why they have this natural ordained power to determine how reality in the world should be. So the question of good and evil isn't one merely of danger, but it's the kind of caricatures, the processes of logic and reason that are created by the presumed relationship that we have to morality. And even more dangerously, to presuppose that we create rules of this called ethics that allow us to somehow objectively intuit what these forms of morality would be, even at the expense of other people's existence. Massimo, should we conclude that dividing the world into good and bad is not just misguided, but actually dangerous? Well, you would almost say it's evil, right? Uh, so, yeah, I don't, I, don't believe, I don't believe that the categories of good and evil are particularly useful, and in fact, I believe that they tend to be pernicious. Uh, let me tell you a couple of stories to illustrate the point. 
uh, a colleague of mine, Owen Flanagan, a, f a number of years ago, interviewed the Dalai Lama. And uh, Flanagan was curious about how the Dalai Lama would react to this classic thought experiment. He said, um, so if I had a time machine and I were allowed to go back in time and kill Hitler, should I not do it and shouldn't I do it because Hitler was evil? Let's start with Hitler because, you know, why, why leave the obvious easy case uh, for later? And the Dalai Lama's response, and, and on top of that, Owen said, uh, should I also not be angry about, about Hitler, right? That's, that's what motivates me. I, I know what Hitler did, and I get angry, and that's I go back in, in time and kill him. The Dalai Lama's response was, you absolutely should go back and kill Hitler. And in fact, you should do a funfair. You should organize a sort of a party, a ceremony, uh, because this is an important thing that you're doing. You're actually going to be better helpful. But no, you should absolutely not be angry about it. You should approach the issue as if you were a surgeon excising a tumor. Uh, the surgeon isn't going to be upset about the tumor, isn't going to say, tumor, evil. It's just the tumor is just the thing that happens in the universe. And if we can avoid it, if we can get it out, uh, then we should, because it's, it's a positive thing. It improves uh, human health uh, to do it. So that's the way we should be treating Hitler. So the Dalai Lama was making two points. First of all, that yes, it is, uh, it, it's not a question of opinion whether Hitler was a positive or a negative in the, in the cosmic uh, dharma, uh, web of dharma. It clearly was not a good thing. That's why you, you take, get rid of it. But at the same time, you shouldn't be upset about it because you should understand that we are all the result of complex webs of cause and effect. No, none of us asked to be here. None of us chose our parents. None of us chose our genetic makeup or our upbringing or anything like that. So if we have responsibility from an ethical perspective, it's kind of a little tiny. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be held uh, responsible for what we do, but it, we should, that should happen with a certain attitude in mind. The second story I want to tell you goes back to the early second century and to ancient Rome, the Stoic teacher Epictetus was asked a similar question by one of his students. Uh, of course, Hitler was not born yet. Caligula was. Um, <laughs> but you know, same thing. And the student asked, um, you know, so if I see this you know, really bad person, should I not you know, put him in jail or, or, or kill him or anything like that? And, and Epictetus' response was, well, Think of the bad person, what you are calling a bad person, as a, a blind man. The blind man is uh, going down the street and he's likely to hurt himself and bump into others, possibly hurt other people. But you wouldn't go in there and put him in jail or kill him. What you're going to do is, first of all, to make sure that he doesn't hurt other people. And second of all, if possible, to make sure that he doesn't hurt himself and perhaps even uh, help him to you know, be cured of his blindness. That's the way you should approach things. And it's the same with every, every human behavior. So the result, the, the upshot of all of this is that categories like good and evil are not helpful because they tend to be dichotomous. They tend to create this sharp distinction. And obviously, we are always the good ones. right? It's always the other side that is bad. You know, we're, we're not evil. Uh, they're not helpful. They are, in fact, pernicious uh, because they uh, uh, prompt us to act in a way that is uncharitable, that is uncaring toward other people. What we should try to do instead is to be helpful. And yes, sometimes to be helpful does mean uh, intervene in a certain way and perhaps even in a, in a you know, violent, firm way, but only as the last resort and always with the right attitude of charity toward other human beings 
who are pretty much in the same boat as, as we are. Thank you so much. Um, Joanna, over to you. Should we conclude that dividing the world into good and bad is not just misguided, but actually dangerous? Thank you. So there's a whole very ancient tradition of people talking about what might be a good way to be, how to be a good person, how to act well, and how to treat others well. And these terms, good and bad, originally they come from an um, old Germanic tradition of language, and they're quite practical in their original use. This idea of bad, it's very much about a misfortune or a disease, as Masimo was saying, something that's going to cause harm. And similarly with good, there's this idea it's a benefit or a gift. So they don't have this adamantine, absolute system, this idea that they connect to some elsewhere beyond the human that can't be argued with, that can never ever be countered. So I think that tradition of debating how to live well, how to treat others well, is obviously incredibly important and we want to be able to act in the world and to counter where we see harm and misfortune and as you were saying, d this disease. And so throughout history you have that debate and it goes all the way back to 2000 years before Christ, the Epic of Gilgamesh, through you know, the Greeks and through further societies and ages that we'll touch on. But I think also then you have those people who are trying to control everything, as we've heard from Tommy, that they're, they're trying to just sanction their own activities with reference to this absolute realm that can't be countered. And I think you get these crisis points then consistently where people try to react against this. And William Blake existing in the 18th century in a society where slave labors, the slave trade is still operating, child labor is being used, there's massive inequities, poverty. And he just says, your terminology is completely corrupt. You argue that this is the good and your entire system of values has failed utterly. And so I will do something else. I'll create another version of values. So I think we don't want to fall into a trap that's often set for us in this debate, that if we don't accept that absolute realm, then we can't debate the terms. We can all debate and intervene and discuss. And Adrian Rich talks about this, this idea of moral responsibility is refusing to let others do the naming and the talking for you. You, you join the conversation and you invite others to join. So I definitely argue for that, for debating, which I guess is what we're doing. So that would be my argument. Thank you. Thank you to the panel for laying out your positions. Let's kick off with um, trying to grapple with this idea of uh, the binary of good and evil. Tommy, why has the West specifically, but perhaps not uniquely, divided morality in this binary way? What function does this serve? Well, the Western metaphysical tradition seems interesting, at least if we think of it from the birth of enlightenment forward. Uh, in that it tried to create and organize different hierarchies and taxonomies of human beings, right? So the exploration of things like archetypes, philosophical anthropologies that are tied to race, ethnicity, these initially were symbols of geography, right? At least when you're talking from a Kantian tradition, it's pragmatic anthropology. So the idea there was that we could identify a certain land, what we would now call culture, and a people as being almost synonymous. The land gives growth to them and to their, to their outlook on the world. So within Europe, you seem to have this tradition, both in the Teutonic to German idealist tradition and the Anglo-Saxon one, to try to organize people not only by those geographic or physiognomical characteristics, but also by the types of thinking, thoughts, archetypes, and moralities that they actually live by. And that seems to be the scary part, because 
the binary that exists between good and evil initially talk about certain characteristics, injuries, harms, etc. But when you start looking at in-groups and out-groups, the development of different kinds of people and kinds of beings, then you're having good and evil not function as signs of morality, but actually arguments about cosmology, how certain universes or certain origins of people fundamentally differ in kind. And we modernly call that race, right? But within the development of that throughout the modern period, we're actually talking about telos and purpose how certain kinds of people are intended to live throughout time, how certain kinds of people create different civilizations. And if those civilizations or those types are not thought to be of the good and not rational, not moral, not of God, so to speak, um, then that primitivism, that savageness, represented a kind of darkness that had to be stomped out in the universe. And I think that's where the danger comes about. right? So the origin or the marrying of philosophical anthropology to morality and seeing certain people as good or bad and then needing to be eliminated or eradicated from the world to make the world good um, seems to be part of the most insidious and dangerous aspects of what we think of in terms of modernity. But then that gives us kind of the crisis of dehumanization that I think we still deal with today. We see it in America with you know, racial killings and police violence, but we see it throughout the 20th century in the Holocaust, Armenian genocide, tons of different catastrophes that all hinged on whether or not they were actually bringing good in the world by eliminating an evil or inferior stock of people. So, so I would like please. to uh, make a comment about that. Uh, so yeah, to some extent, uh, I, I agree with that analysis. I would not say that that is the metaphysical philosophical tradition of the West. There is no such a thing as the philosophical tradition of the West. There are a number of traditions that are interconnected and, and, and uh, influencing each other. For instance, uh, if we go back to the Greek and Romans, the Stoics were cosmopolitan, so they definitely did not recognize any distinction uh, between uh, different peoples. They did not recognize the categories of good and evil, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, as far as race is concerned, that also is a fairly recent concept. I mean, you, you mentioned recent you know, from Kant on, and that is, that's definitely the case. Um, before, that wasn't the way uh, people even in the Western tradition saw things. They recognized, of course, the existence of other people that were you know, the barbarians. Um, but the barbarians were simply people who spoke a different language. And they, you know, the word itself comes from the fact that other people's tongues, uh, uh, you know, to the Greeks, they sounded like bra 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 And that's where the barbarian thing is, like in those that, that talk bra 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 but there was a very different conception of, of the others. So, so it's, it's, it's complicated. The problematics that you have identified just a minute ago are actually fairly recent, and that doesn't make them less problematic, of course. Uh, but they are, they are the result, really, of a, a post-enlightenment uh, elaboration on concepts of, of race in the way in which we, or so-called scientific racism, as we understand it uh, today. Even the uh, just a position, the, the, the opposition between good and evil, this is clearly pre-enlightenment pre uh, uh, you know, distinction. If it doesn't go back to the Greek and Romans, it certainly goes back to the Middle Ages and the, and the influence of Christianity. Uh, and in that case, it wasn't uh, necessarily aimed at different kinds of people in terms of ethnic groups. It was, it was aimed at people who didn't believe what I believe. Um, so it's so it's complicated. Um, it, the, the, the even even just the Western tradition, and then outside of Western tradition, things are even more complex than. Um, so, but do you think that the Romans didn't have this category, or because they were cosmopolitan uh, along racial lines, presumably um, of good and evil? But presumably, they did have hierarchies of human values. They had notions of in groups and out groups. I mean, were 
women considered just as good as men, for example? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, you pick an easy one. Uh, I try. <laughs> no, yes, and yes and no. Mostly no. Okay. Uh, especially in the Greek tradition, women <coughs> were certainly not considered uh, equal. Even within the Romans, it took a lot of a long time before women get uh, got accorded basic rights such as the right to own property. But I was talking about different philosophical traditions. So the Stoics, for instance, very, were very clear. Uh, women have the same ability to think and reason as men, therefore uh, they're entitled to the same kind of, uh, of uh, treatment, the same kind of access to uh, studying philosophy and practicing philosophy, etc. So, but that was my point, that within the, the Western tradition there are actually fairly contrasting schools, and so that um, we can't just talk about the West in general. That's, that's misleading. It's interesting about the Romans, because you think with the Colosseum, it's a bit like a kind of really dark reality TV program where <laughs> you have some sort of crazed person in the background, like the Hunger Games, really. I mean, that's obviously drawn from, where they think, oh, the audience is getting bored of you know, this particular thing. Let's get loads, you know, let's get some lions and get them to eat people. You know, this kind of, and this sort of endless escalation in line with the only then value system is what's going to keep the audience coming in, much as many of our kind of, you could say, entertainments today. But thinking about this tradition, and I wondered um, in terms of, I was thinking of Nietzsche, Thus Spake Zarathustra, which he writes in you know, 1883, 1885, and his argument that these kind of systems of binaries, the reason he calls it Thus Spake Zarathustra is he thinks he blames Zarathustra for this system, doesn't he? And he says in Ecce Homo, that's why I called it by this, because he argues Zarathustra, this pre-6th century BC um, teacher who's associated with the religion of Zoroastrianism, began this kind of system of duality. And he says in my book, I wanted to send him into the world to kind of rework this original error. So that's quite interesting. And there's a whole tradition, I mean, in literature of Blake does it, and Coleridge does it, and Owen Barfield, they're all trying to get beyond these binaries, as Nietzsche does, and trying to look at ideas about polarity or progressing beyond contraries. And so there's this counter tradition where you, you do say we can have definitions, we can talk about good things and bad things, but let's always try and emerge somewhere else. Let's not get fixed in these warring binaries. So that seems to be going on a lot in through that sort of period in literature. And it's not, a, not by chance that you mentioned Zoroastrianism, which had a major influence on Christianity. So absolutely you know, that, yes, again, and that I'm just taking that yeah. from Nietzsche. Yeah, 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 yeah Yes, I, I don't. And so that dichotomy, documentization, what yeah. a word, of things uh, does come from that tradition that then was uh, propagated by the Christians for a couple of millennia. Yeah. But the question, but the question isn't really the plurality of different counter-traditions within the West, but how certain ideas triumphed over others, right? And, and this, is, this is one of the, I think, crucial aspects of, of pointing out the plurality within various traditions. We can talk about the Stoics, for instance, but Stoicism, as you are just saying, doesn't come to be the platform by which Christianity or even other philosophical anthropologies that launch into the Enlightenment or even come afterwards to define ethnology and then launch 20th century genocides um, become known as Western metaphysical tradition or Western, the Western, Western episteme. So within the question that I think becomes, well, in the debates between good and evil over the centuries, why do some forms of binary thinking become not only lodged within a relationship between the person and God, 
or how one intuits God or has revealed the intuitions or our mission of God, but how that becomes translated into the actual world where some individuals that know the good then get to define other groups of people, right, as good or evil, and then utilizing that relationship with that outside themselves, be it noose, whatever you want to call it, to then exterminate them, right? Um, I've, I've always been fascinated because you do have these kind of counter traditions, these different questions, especially out of existentialists that are trying to ask, well, how do these things actually bring about evil in the world? How does goodness bring about evil in the world? But the answer seems to always be short because you're always appealing to the same kinds of Western societies, Western civilizations, Western norms by which you're trying to deal with the problem of evil. And that doesn't seem to lead very many places. I don't know if you could retreat to Stoicism as a political philosopher or social ethics. Well, it's so the, the part of my point is that there are, as I said, multiple traditions bef within the West, which not only are philosophically distinct and sometimes practically distinct, but they influence each other in ways that might not be apparent. So for instance, you're absolutely right, of course, that after the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, the Christian tradition is the one that took over. Now, the alignment itself was actually a reaction against, against that tradition. But that tradition incorporated a number of other notions that came before, including several Stoic notions. I mean, the, the Christians, uh, for instance, uh, uh, believe in, in, in seven uh, cardinal, so-called cardinal virtues, uh, you know, uh, courage, practical wisdom, uh, justice, temperance, faith, hope, and charity. Well, the first four are actually not Christian. They're originally uh, platonic, in fact, and and then adopted by the Stoics, but we don't. But if you look at it from today perspective, say, oh, there is these seven things. If you don't actually make the distinction and say, oh, actually, out of those seven things, three came from one tradition and four came from another, and what you get now is a mix of those things, then then there is a risk of obscuring uh, distinctions that that need to be made. That's why, again, I try to resist the notion of a single uh, unitary or coherent Western tradition, just in the same way in which there is no such thing as, I don't know, an Eastern tradition. There's a bunch of them. And they, of course, are related, and they interacted historically. Uh, and what we get today is a mix of, of things. But, uh, but it, I think it's useful to make those distinctions. But, but if there are competing conception, philosophical conceptions within the West of good and evil, and that they're evolving, is the substance of what those terms good and evil mean purely political in that they are in service of a political project like a distinction that can justify the oppression or exploitation of other peoples or is there some objective content that we can hold on to in these terms i mean ultimately are there things that we can all agree on are good and bad or are these terms no. simply no 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 yes. I mean, <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Well, well, but this, but this, I think this goes to the crux of what, what you know, what I'm pushing, right? Like, the the question of what re represents the Western tradition, and I think I, I completely think you're right. As a, you know, if we're doing a genealogy of ideas, so to speak, I think I think academically and intellectually, you're correct. Uh, but the question is, what is the projection of the West, or of let's take a smaller entity? What is the projection of Europe uh, as a philosophical entity that creates a system of ethics? Right, as a modern project, or say, post, even in a post-Enlightenment project, so there's a there's a declaration there, right? When Hegel is uh, assembling how we're going to study the history of philosophy, he's doing so with a direct intentionality of how he wants to read 
a Western or European tradition and to the exclusion of other histories like the East or Africa that don't have, that don't participate in history of civilization. And we've unfortunately inherited that. So if the West or if Europe wants to declare itself through these norms or through these ethical systems or through these moral or uh, proclamations to the world as the innovation and the highest product of their, of their rational productions, uh, then what do we say about that actual projection? Why do we, while there's plurality historically, what do we say about what was chosen to represent the justification for Europe to impose itself on the rest of the world under the rubric of good and evil? It may be whether your deities create by an absolute force of will and agency. I was thinking this when you're talking about the Eastern tradition. So there's those traditions in the, I know you say there are many traditions, but that tradition of the gods dreaming the world and when you have a dream, everything's much more, it's a kind of more sort of vague environment, isn't it? And things merge into each other and there are less absolutes again in a dream. It's quite, it's a very big difference or whether your God says, right, I'm God, I'm doing this today and here's everyone divided by logos and absolute definition. So it's, there's a big question in, as, in terms of what claims we're making for language in our tradition. We make very, very concrete claims often that there's an absolute veridical referent for our terms and that that referent lies beyond the human. And so it can't be debated, it can't be argued with. Whereas if you're Blake, you say, well, we create these gods in our languages and they mean enormous things. I mean, they're very important as a huge metaphor. But equally, we're not saying, certainly he isn't saying, there's this adamantine referent beyond us all that can never be counted. Well, I, I mean, can we talk about some things? Uh, so I know you're saying there's no objective um, good and evil, but I'm thinking, for example, you know, burying female children alive upon birth because you don't want too many girls. Objectively evil? I mean, socially undesirable. Socially undesirable. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good enough. No, I mean. Good enough. Yeah. What about um, the education of women and girls? Is that a good? Depends. Are you an imperial country or are you in a, you know, agrarian country? Right. Like the context um, matters. Really? So there would be a context where yeah, yes. it was better if they were. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, but th I mean, be very. Let, let's be very serious about this. So if we're talking about, let's say, you know, the United States. Right? I mean, if you're talking about the education of women and girls or even suffrage rights, you're largely talking about a process by which, you know, white suffragists were educated in, in the laws of ethnology as a justification for evolution, as a justification for them to rule over other races and colonize. Is that the kind of education that we want? Well, but that's well, a different I think question. That's a, yeah, that's a different well, question no, no, about but, whether but, but that per is what education, is like, that's what I'm Well, saying. I guess it's my question is about equality. It's the John Stuart Miller question, mm -hmm. that if we have a civilized society, do we extend the same opportunities to everyone? So do you then say, we believe that education is, should be extended equally in that society to right. all those? And, so, and that's the, our moral order, actually, our sort of global international moral order is very much predicated on right. an equality, equality of law and equality of opportunity. To the exclusion of, of other peoples and other beings. Absolutely. I totally agree. It's in no way, I, I'm not in but any way saying it, it works brilliantly. No, no, I'm but, just but saying it, but that's it makes the sort of basic right, but I, what I'm, argumentative I'm, I'm, premise behind but it. I, I'm questioning the basis. Yes, because what I, I'm saying I is that the, that the presumption of the global moral order has already left certain groups of people out. Of course. Right. So, yes. so, so, so the question is, in that system of education where there are enslaved people, do we still want all people educated? Now, the, the traditional liberal position on that moral order is to say, well, if we eliminate the mistake of having enslaved people and then put them in that society, then we can will this for all groups of people. 
right? And what I'm saying with the context was about, well, even about the education of women question is, well, what kind of evils are produced by that assumption of equality? If the idea of equality is that all people have the power to decide what good and evil is, that they understand the rational, then you've empowered other groups of people to determine other people who should be excluded or other people who should be eliminated. So I'm very much about not just the contextualization, but the actual consequences of what we take to be universal good. I totally understand. Yeah, I do appreciate entirely what you're saying. But I also think there's always that interesting gap, isn't there, in any system where people don't always believe what they're educated in as well. So that, that premise that if you put people in a corrupt system, if that's the only system available, mm -hmm. then they'll automatically be corrupted. That, of course, But again, I think you're talking about two different things, result. and it's important to... Yes. No, no, I was right? talking about the basic John Stuart Mill. Yeah, yeah, is I this, know. Is right? this equal right. point, you know, is well, one equal question point of equality? Is, is education, access to education for everybody, regardless of gender, ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera, or social status, a good idea? or not, that's one question. And the second question, much more complicated, is what are you gonna teach to those people? What, what does that education consist of? Now, I, I take it a suggestion is to bracket that second question because we only yes, have an definitely. hour. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, and, and ask the more basic one because without the basic, the other reason to do that is because without the basic, ag an agreement on the basic question, then there is no point in going to the second part, right? So, so would you think that universal access to education regardless of gender, uh, ethnicity, etc., is a good idea or not. I wouldn't use the word good and evil, but sure, is, sure, it, sure. is it it's something desirable or yeah, not? Yeah, it's a socially desirable. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Right. yeah we could agree with that. Okay, great. <laughs> yes. So yes. great, yes. so we can move on to thesis. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, from the Inquisition to the Crusades, the Iraq War to Putin's invasion of Ukraine, the instigators typically support their actions on the grounds of doing good. And some would argue they believe it themselves. Is this the fault of the moral category good in the first place? Or how else might we think of these actions, Massimo? To some extent, is the, is the uh, fault of the category. And you know, as I said, good and evil are, it's a dichotomy. It's there are strong terms. There is often, especially in the Christian metaphysical tradition, there is a, a, a strong metaphysical sense, like evil personified. When we use the word, you know, Hitler is evil personified, we, we seem to be thinking about evil as a, some kind of essence that can pervade people. And I think that's bullshit. Um, that, that, that kind of thing doesn't exist. It's metaphorically. Uh, sorry, metaphysically questionable. But then let's also not forget that those dichotomies are just as much instrumental into oppressing people as much as they become rationalization for the fact that I already want to oppress people anyway. So now I'm gonna give myself a rationalization. I mean, Aristotle famously said that a human being is a rational animal. Bertrand Russell said that he sees no evidence of it. Um, <laughs> The reality is we are rational in the sense of capable of reason, but often enough, so modern social psychologists to te teach us that we are actually rationalizing a lot of the time, right? So we want certain goals. Sometimes we're not even actually aware exactly why we want certain things. And then we come up with rationalization excuses after the fact. And of course, nothing works as well as an excuse to say, well, I killed you because you were evil, right? Um, so. It, it goes both ways. To some extent, the invention of evil leads to these horrible consequences, but it's also the fact that we uh, tend to do horrible things and then we want to, to feel good about it. I mean, you know, no, nobody, 
wakes up in the morning, not even, again, Hitler or Putin or whoever you want to come up with as an example. Nobody comes up in the morning, wakes up in the morning, goes to the mirror and, and does the Disney villain thing, like, whoa, what kind of evil can I do today? <laughs> no, they, they, they think they're doing the right thing. I mean, Putin has justifications to himself and to the world for what he's doing, and so did Hitler, and so did Mussolini, et cetera, et cetera. The question, therefore, is, well, should we buy those justifications? But define the right thing, because the, I think when we say these people believe that they're doing the right thing, the right thing for whom? Because uh, ultimately, you know, and I, and I think this is what kind of you were touching yes, on as well, yeah. right? It's like even in the, the multiple, multiple Western traditions around good and evil and, and their meaning, ultimately a lot of the philosophy is hidden behind the concept of universality to justify the validity of those concepts while simultaneously not applying them in a way that has been universal. And so it's almost like difficult to criticize the principles if they simultaneously claim to be universal while not actually negating it, yes. Yeah. But I don't think they did. Right? I mean, so, so like, I don't think of Hitler as a universalist or, or Putin as a universalist. Uh, and if they think of themselves that way, they just don't understand what universalism actually is. Uh, so no, I think that if we take universalism or cosmopolitanism or, or however, whatever word you want to use seriously, then it really does follow that certain actions are not, not acceptable. And I don't see how one could reasonably use them, uh, use those ideas as in the of those actions. The fact that people do anyway uh, because lots of people don't reason particularly well or they don't pay particular attention to uh, philosophy or, or facts on the ground, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's a fact of human life. But no, I cannot honestly imagine somebody who says, I'm a cosmopolitan, therefore I'm entitled to kill half of the world because they don't look like me. That's like, that that's you, a do, very you just don't understand. What? But that's Sorry. a very common cosmopolitan idea for Europe in a, in a certain period no, of time. No, it isn't. It, it is. Absolutely not. For example, so absolutely for example, not. no, I mean, it actually is. I mean, my second book was on how Josiah Royce literally introduces a notion of cosmopolitanism and idealism on the basis of enslaving a whole group of people in the early 20th century. And he had this debate even at the University of Aberdeen in their philosophical society like trying to figure out how Anglo-Saxonism could be extended over German idealism as a justification for why Anglo-Saxons should yeah, leave the world but, and bring it democracy. Right, but what that is is a very good example of rationalization. Right, but you but you have centuries and centuries of, right, but this is what I mean. So like you're, in our time, we're saying that this doesn't fit with what we think the rationalization would be. But then from the 18th to 19th century, you have all the letters and the and the premier institutions of Europe that are centers of philosophy endorsing the very same argument. This is a, this is what I mean. It's a perspective of time. It's a perspective of how context and perspective shifts. It's socially undesirable for us to make that admission now. And what we say is that that wasn't rational or philosophically rigorous. But even Nazism was thought to be a product of a certain idealist tradition. Houston Stuart Chamberlain actually defected from an Anglo-Saxon birth to support a German file tradition precisely on the basis they thought idealism was a more active sentiment of the universal on the one in the society, that it could actually create a unified notion of a folk. So we, we have to be careful with suggesting that those are all mistakes when that's a progression of the kinds of ideas, these traditions in the plurality of the West that you think exist, but somehow don't so, become taken up as desirable. Okay. But Is there something about yeah, classification sorry. as well that, I mean, William James writes about this, that all the interesting stuff emerges in what he calls the unclassified residuum. So there's this mania for classification in, I mean, the tradition that we're speaking of. You know, everything has to be typified and taxonomized and placed in a category. And, and this 
as, as James is saying, if you do that and you say, I've completed it, a bit like some people said they completed Netflix in the pandemic. I've completed, I've done it. <laughs> so you, you know, That's not my finished. project. <laughs> <laughs> done. But you know, you have this apparently infinite thing, which is what's going on around us and Netflix actually. But anyway, that's, and, and you say, right, I've completed it, I've done it. And that's the sort of, as you said, the telos. The telos is to complete. And yes, yes. inevitably, as you're saying, and that goes back to your second, the second point about education, that inevitably then you miss so much out, but you discard everything you've missed out because you say it has no value in our system because it hasn't been classified. And that's the history of all those voices and people who are not included because the classification doesn't acknowledge them. So I think it's something to do with that adamantine classification, I think. It's Aristotle's fault, really. Um, it's who? Aristotle. He, he was <laughs> yeah, it's all, yeah, Aristotle. And <laughs> yes. he's, not, he's really not good on women. You no, know, he has no, two problems. definitely not. That's <laughs> right. Definitely, definitely not. But, but also, who gets to classify? Who is yes. classifying well, cool. who? Yes. Cool. And yes. to what purpose, right? Mahmoud mm. Mandani talks about you know, the kind of Western tradition of classifying other peoples very much in the, with the intention of creating hierarchies of human value and then determining the location of people's rights in, in, in relation to that. And so when we talk about kind of objective notions of good and evil, which I, I'm sort of, I understand you don't want to, you don't, you think that there's like a theological aspect to that notion, the right? The physical aspect, that, yes. That, that you take issue with. And, um, and I also wonder whether the, um, ref, uh, the, the denial of any validity to that purpose is also a kind of refusal to recognize how other worldviews have thought about uh, systems of values. You know, the idea that even thinking of good and evil in a metaphysical way is a bad thing, is itself a classification of other people's ways of looking at the world. But it seems to me that underlying a lot of this, this last few minutes is, is the fundamental question of, you know, who says, who says what and, and, and why? And uh, that's an objection you can raise to anything. And if we take it too seriously, then we can just quit, go home, and not have a discussion, right? Because if you say, well, but who says that cosmopolitanism means this as opposed to that? Well, I say one thing, you say another thing. Let's have a conversation here. And let's have that conversation based on evidence, reason, uh, on, on actual definitions, on historical trends, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that if we have that conversation, it will turn out that uh, thinking of Hitler or Putin as uh, cosmopolitan or universalist is just mistaken. It's just not the right way to think about it, regardless of whether they themselves thought, thought that way or not. Uh, but you can always argue the point, absolutely, sure. I think there's a distinction. As an, as an intellectual, I'm, I would more love to have that conversation with you, right? Because I think it would be interesting, you know, intellectual history. But I think there is something about the relationship that power has to the idea of the universal that's extended itself into the problem of eliminating other groups of people, which is what we're concerned with, right? So there is a debate about how different people agree or disagree about what good or bad is, okay? What's moral or what's immoral? But the question is who has the power to actually make those things relevant in the real world such that they could eliminate whole groups of people? So the reality of the situation is that whether or not Hitler was suffering from a mistaken identity of being a universalist is that he created a certain system of power and deployment of violence that certainly occupied a moment within human history that gave the illusion that this is a idea, an ideology, or belief system that if it would have won, right, would set the terms of what we think the metaphysical tradition between good and bad is. So we're working from the background of a human history where Nazism lost. 
but it is possible that Nazism could have won. Yes. Right, well, yes, but but right, but but notice, and this is what I mean though. Notice how the the discourse on power and what we take as the historical epic fundamentally changes the calculus that we would have about what good and evil is. Correct. Yeah. But 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 if you're talking about, you keep talking about, uh, well, if we were having an academic discussion, first of all, we are having an academic discussion. We're, we're, we're right. not, you know, to some. But you know extent. what I mean. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But I, I also don't see, uh, and in fact, I would like to reject any kind of sharp distinction between academic and practical discussions. To me, ac academy is in interesting and important because it has practical consequences. Ideas matter, right? And I guess in the case of Hitler and, and Nazism, what I'm rejecting is the very notion that they actually did think themselves as, as cosmopolitan or, or universalist. I mean, this is clearly a, a philo philosophy. It's an ideology that uh, clearly says, I belong to a superior group and you be damned and I have the right to exterminate you, that to me simply does not sound like any form of universalism or cosmopolitanism that I've ever heard of. So matters, you know, concepts do matter and, and, and they are used in a certain way that has practical consequences. I was just thinking again about this language rigidity and actually to, to slightly go back to the Greeks and be a bit nice about them, that the Greeks have this so Owen Barfield, who says, he talks about Wittgenstein and he says, don't worry so much, Wittgenstein, about your problems with language. You know, it's true that we can never get to the absolute in our language terms. But he says, but if we look historically at language, we see all these assumptions within these words, these layers and layers of the kind of beliefs of former people, which is what we're talking about, of course, that we use these words and they've had wildly different connotations. 1928, Radcliffe Hall's novel, The Well of Loneliness, is banned because it's bad because it shows love between women, which was seen as bad at the time. And of course, now we would think that the banning of it was bad. And so the, word, the same word is being used for wildly different connotations. And it's really important. You see, then, I would regard that as a progression in the use of those terms. And so you see that happening. But also, if you don't accept this sort of history within these words, then they, again, they acquire this sort of rigidity, this idea that they mean something absolute. And he, the Greeks, um, so Owen Barford has this idea about the Greeks that when someone grew a beard, we say they've got a beard, or they've grown a beard. And they have this expression, they've got a beard foaming on their face, that the whole kind of world is more dynamic in that metaphor. And so this idea maybe to put the dynamism back into language terms, again, without this notion, as you say, ideas matter and they're embedded in these language terms and to try and sort of fathom them, fathom them, I think, all the time would be really important. Otherwise, they get this sort of rigidity. And then, as you say, these monstrous people use them as if they have a kind of magical, absolutist purpose, I think. Thank you. Um, let's, let's talk about our third theme, which is the idea of alternative frameworks of morality. And, um, it, you know, are there alternative ways of thinking about morality that would uh, potentially not undermine social order uh, and actually, you know, create a better world for us all? Are there, are there other ways of thinking about good and evil or the problem that good and evil seeks to resolve ultimately, I guess? In ways that don't disrupt social order. <laughs> well, no, we need to disrupt social okay, order. Okay. But I think when we say social order, we mean they don't create chaos where everybody says, you know, well, I, I think torturing cats is fine and somebody else <laughs> says it's wrong. And, <laughs> and then we can't decide who should be allowed to right. do what wait, wait, at all because everything. It's not fine? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, you guys tell me. No. You're the expert. Yeah, I, right. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you know it's not something I would do. But <laughs> right. Socially undesirable. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to, exactly. I mean, I mean, to me, that makes sense, right? Listen, listen. Again, this this goes back to what we're saying, right? We're, we're dealing we're dealing with with two things. We're dealing with the idea of an, an abstract notion of of the universal of good and evil, right? What we can kind of get our hands onto our minds around, and then how that's put or exists within a society. So. Are there alternative ways of thinking about it? Of course there are, right? So if you're looking at indigenous traditions, African traditions, or even anti-colonial resistor traditions, uh, they reject the notion of, of, of the good, generally, because it's located to the social order, right? You see this even in Martin Luther King's work, right? This idea that we need a revolution of values because what we take as being the good and being democratic fundamentally has notions of evil and dehumanization in it. Uh, even you know, if you're looking at, at, at African American literature, Africana literature, the idea of the trickster, someone who's a deviant that's constantly trying to shift the, that comes the kind of anti-hero, shift around the ground, doing what things that we think are bad, but nonetheless bring about good for certain groups of people. We have these tropes throughout human civilization and through and throughout certain kinds of traditions. The th the, the thing I'm hinging on though is is the disruption of the social order because. It seems that if we're if we've had a conversation up to this point that's trying to locate the dynamics of good and evil and how it either projects or impacts certain groups of people, marginalized people, dehumanizes people, you know, justifies elimination or genocide of certain groups of people, and we don't want to disrupt the institutions or the belief systems or ideologies that do that, um, then I think that is a pointless conversation. Uh, what we're talking about is not only the the debate between the dichotomy. We're talking about how the dichotomy is inculcated into the structures, the idea, the episteme of a certain kind of civilization. How do certain civilizations justify themselves as good, democratic, and liberal that nonetheless have no problem exterminating, suppressing, exploiting other groups of civilization? And insofar as that's the case, the ideas then would have to generate a disruption or a refutation, a disintegration of the kinds of ideas, the kinds of institutions, the kinds of systems that allow that to happen. When we think that we're protesting, you know, Putin's intervention, we're not protesting Putin's ideas. We're protesting his deployment of violence against a group of people for the purposes of what he thinks is bringing good into the world. And that's what I think becomes the most difficult part. Because while we like to have, and this is, go back to the distinction between kind of the academic conversation versus the practical one. When I think of the practical conversation, I'm thinking about the real world in the sense that people who are not participating in the discussion with us take the impact of what our discussion's arguing about. We can disagree with police killing, but somebody's being shot by a bullet that our discussion doesn't stop. So the same way that we're talking about good and evil as an abstract category, there are people who are victimized by the power dynamics that see them as evil. And insofar as we're going to have a different way of thinking about that, it's not just that it has to include that perspective, but it also has to look at what is it about the systems and the language that we're talking about that's missing out on the way that violence or us being spared from that violence shapes that discussion. And I don't know if ideas are powerful enough or quick enough to stop the deployment of people trying to eradicate evil in the real world. But have you come across any um, philosophies from alternative parts of the world that do not seek to deploy concepts of good or evil or similar um, concepts in order to exert power over certain groups? There are or some. To, yeah? Yeah, there are some. I mean, but, but, even, but even the notions of good and evil that you get from indigenous or even Africana thought locates goodness in the existence of the group. That seems to be a very generalizable mm. idea, mm -hmm. right? But there, but the the deployment or the universalization of that on other groups is something that differs with degree, location, and just historical, right? Impetus. If you want to be an empire and a imperialist, you're going to have that tendency. Versus if you're more of a isolationist or you know endemic kind of culture. Mm. Joanna. 
It's so, it's so interesting because this kind of brings us back to arguments that, uh, about absolutism versus relativism. Because so once you say, you don't, if you're not an absolutist, a kind of there is this absolute permanent realm of platonic ideals, then there's this sort of notion that you can no longer intervene at all, that you've just fractured into nothing. And so the balance, I think, is how to counter those who have these maniacal schemes you know, without turning into a maniacal schema. I mean, that's the sort of balance always. And I was thinking it's a bit like a two-party system where you have two parties, and on the one side you have a party that says, you've all got to wear hats all the time. We love hats. Don't ever take your hat off. You know, wear it in the shower, in bed. And the Mask. other party says, never wear a hat, even if it's really sunny and or you're really cold. You know, all of you in the audience, take off your hats now. And all of us here would think, aren't these people a bit weird? You know, firstly, why are they so transfixed by hats? Why do they think there's an absolute <laughs> position on hats? And we have this experience in the world where people are wearing hats very sensibly because it's chilly. You know, we've got this experiential reality that we're dealing with. And yes, you don't want to then fracture into countless, countless competing hyper-frenetic individualisms. But you can absorb experience because there are these ancient traditions that we draw on, we've been talking about, and then we counter them. And Bergson talked about this. He said, we have this idea that theory is the most profound thing and that experience is superficial, but maybe it's the other way around, that actually these great big theories are superficial because in the end our experiences are somehow deeper because we're here trying to fathom them. So I would argue, yeah, less, less sort of hatism of both sides. Nassimi, would we be better off with a stoic framework of morality? Yes, of course, <laughs> but, but that's only one. Uh, I suppose that is stoic, the hat. <laughs> that's right, yes, yeah. but that's only one example, right? So the, the stoic example shows that, again, the Western tradition is, in fact, not monolithic. Neither are other traditions, right? I mean, when we say that, uh, you know, certainly the West is not the only uh, part of the world that has engaged historically in colonialism, imperialism, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, think about the Mesoamerican empires, for instance, uh, that preceded the Western colonization. So I don't think, I think it's actually dangerous, in fact, to some extent, to uh, create a situation or a scenario where uh, one group of people, in this particular case, the West, but you know, 300 years ago might have been something else. It's like, oh, those are the people that are really doing the bad things. Uh, other, other parts are doing good things. No, uh, human beings are complicated. Uh, human beings uh, are often motivated by power, by, uh, by the, the notion that they're better than others uh, across cultures. And now some cultures reject that, that notion, others embrace it. And what we should try to do is not even to come up with a new system because systems are problematic. The problem with systems is that they tend to be uh, monolithic, rigid, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Simone de Bois famously said that it's insane to uh, try to come up with a, with a philosophical system precisely because life is too complicated. Uh, but that doesn't mean that anything goes, right? We, we, we need to have convers constant conversations about how to change the world, how to change society for the better. And again, I go back to this notion that uh, academic discussions versus practical discussions, if you want to stop uh, police bullets from, from uh, killing people, uh, for instance, in the United States, there's only two ways you can do it. You either arm the people so that they kill the police, or you have to have a conversation. I think they're already armed. <laughs> not, not enough. <laughs> not, not enough. enough. <laughs> okay. Have you ever seen American police? It's, it's yeah. not enough. <laughs> so you either. So now I would per personally rather not 
keep arming people yes. because that goes into a direction that I think uh, ultimately it's it's not it's not a, a favorable one for society. So we have to have conversations. It conversation means to try try to find new ways of looking at things, trying to persuade other people that you know what this is not actually acceptable. This is not something that we want as a, as a society. And so the conversation and the action on the ground are related. They are I would say they are intimately related. If we stop the conversation or if we say well this is just an academic discussion and then people will in fact keep getting killed thank you so much we're gonna have to wrap it there i'm afraid um thank you to our panel of speakers thank you to you the audience for being here well that was an interesting debate thanks for listening to this week's episode of philosophy for our times if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig inspiring kid confidence.